Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches Road podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Steve Norris. Um, and with him, we discussed long-term athlete development. Uh, we know we have been discussing this topic already several times on our show. But um, Dr. Norris is an absolutely expert in this area and has been um, presenting for several associations. I know among others, he has been a few times here in Biromeki and has been presenting here as well. And that's why it was so good that we had the opportunity to speak with him one more time about long-term athlete development. Um, and I need to say that the information he's able to provide, I've never heard some of those. Yes, some of them have been familiar, but still the majority of them have been brand new information to me. Yeah, and, and not only some new information, but also just a, a new perspective on this entire field of LTAD or long-term athlete development. And, and I think it was just so refreshing to, to hear that, right? Like all of these different models and, and all of these different frameworks and everything like that, you know, that they're, they're very, they can't be tested so well, right? So you have to kind of look at overall, what is the, what is the point and what is the goal of long-term athlete development from all of these different viewpoints and perspectives and everything like that. And I, I think it was just a, a really interesting episode with a, with a guy with a, a lot of knowledge and, and, and just a lot of passion for, for this area of work. And, and I think uh, some of his other work that he was mentioning is, is something that's very interesting as well. But, but today we just talked about long-term athlete development and, and kind of comparing and contrasting some of the models and, and diving deeper into to what that actually means. So without any further delay, let's just kick it over to Steve and let him explain it from here. So now we'd like to welcome on Dr. Stephen Norris. Dr. Norris, thanks for joining us today. How's everything going in Calgary? Well, first off, uh, it's my pleasure, Derek and Rick. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a great affinity with Vulamaki and Hagahelia, and so um, I, I, I feel honoured and privileged to um, come and talk to you. It's, it's pretty nice out in Calgary. We're in the, obviously the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, and takes us a bit longer to get out of winter than other parts of the country. So we're still getting some snow overnight, but it usually melts by lunchtime now. But uh, we, we will be below freezing every night at the moment. And then it's about anywhere between eight degrees centigrade and, and 20 degrees centigrade in the afternoons. Yeah, I think we're, we're joining you below zero here for, for the next couple of nights. So we're, we're getting ready for some cold as well. Um, but yeah, we are very excited to talk to you. You're, you're known very well for your, your work in LTAD and that kind of that field of athlete development. So we're, we're excited to jump into that. But we, we always start with a little bit of, of background around our guests. So would you just kind of describe uh, your, yourself and, and your background in, in research and everything like that and kind of your, your areas of interest? Okay, well, obviously, my accent, I'm originally from London in England. Um, I've come a traditional sort of academic route through the sports sciences. I did a BSc honors degree in, in sports science at Chelsea um, in the United Kingdom. And, um, and from that, I actually got a, a first class honors degree. My specialism was in, in sort of applied physiology. And I then went to do my master's in, in Canada. That's the first time I came to North America. And uh, again, did an MSc in applied physiology and started to get very, really interested in 
oxygen uptake kinetics, the speed at which we use oxygen. And, and from that sort of one eye onto altitude. And then from there, I, uh, very expensive being a foreign student in North America. I came back to England after that experience for a couple of years in, in Canada and, and coach swimming. In fact, one of my goals actually when I set out on this path, because I was really fascinated about swimming, swimming and sailing were my own background with a bit of tennis and squash thrown in for fun. I really wanted to be the best swimming coach I could possibly be. So when I went back to England, I, I coached swimming for a couple of years and had reasonable success at sort of um, smaller clubs, but put some kids onto the, the national youth team. Um, but at the same time, I'd been accepted to do my PhD um, at the University of Alberta in Edmonton in, in Canada. So I came back in the January of 90 and did my PhD again in, in applied physiology, specifically to do with O2 kinetics and gaining more and more experience and an understanding around altitude. And my first sort of touch point really with, with hockey, the University of Alberta, Edmonton, of course, was the facility that was used for all the testing for the Edmonton Oilers. And in fact, the very, very first hockey game I ever went to was game four of the Stanley Cup final in the, um, when was that, the sort of April of, of uh, uh, January 1990, uh, sorry, not January, the April of, of, of 1990, last time that uh, the Oilers won the Stanley Cup. Um, but get, I used to get to see the players, you know, two or three times a year in the lab at the U of A because we did all the, the testing on them. But at the same time, a little bit was cross-country skiing. There was a very good swim program in, in Edmonton between the university and the biggest club. So um, I sort of reestablished some links there, did some master's swimming and master's triathlon myself. And so went through those four years. And then one of my external examiners was Dr. David Smith, one of the finest applied sports scientists on the planet and certainly in North America, who's based in Calgary. And Calgary was opening the very first sort of federal national training center particularly for winter sports in Calgary, just as I was finishing my PhD and I was invited to go to Calgary when I finished. And um, that's where I did a weird postdoc where I, I did some teaching, graduate studies, students taught some stuff in the National Coaching Institute, applied physiology, um, planning and periodization and some environmental physiology um, for the coaches coming through their highest diploma level in Canada at the time. And uh, the rest of the time, I, myself and David Smith, we split the sports between us, the national teams and some of the national junior teams. Focus, big focus because of Calgary um, and the facilities from the 88 Winter Games on Canada's winter sports. Um, had a pretty good swim program there. And because we had an altitude program with our Canadian swim team, I, that's how I ended up doing so much with them around the 96 Olympics and actually on through to the 2000 Olympics and the 98 World Championships. So that was my sort of largely academic background. But then since then I've been, and I, I have graduate students, I'm still an adjunct faculty member um, at Mount Royal University and in, in University of Calgary in, 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 in Canada. Um, but I am focused or was focused then for the next five Olympic cycles. So through Salt Lake all the way through to Sochi. Um, uh, with Canada's winter sports. And um, then after Sochi, um, 
I uh, decided to branch out on my own, not so much in exercise physiology, really you learn a lot about performance. So what I do these days is I, I focus on three groups, business corporate groups, sport organizations, and sometimes a specific team and military groups, and usually very specific military groups like a, a special forces group or a sniper team group or whatever about performance and sustainable performance. And uh, the hallmarks of, of performance and keeping it going over time as people change, as rules change, technology changes, equipment changes, whatever it might be, they're the same no matter what you're trying to do, whether you're trying to build a new Audi through to um, uh, uh, design a new um, online business service through to um, helping a sport organization deal with the next two Olympics, whatever it might be. It, it's the, the, the basic components of human behavior um, and how groups work together are the same. And so one learns a lot with sport. And so that's what I do now. And I do a lot of that right across the planet. But I still focus because it's my love on certain things. I do a lot of work with USA Hockey. Um, quite a bit with Hockey Canada and other groups. Um, I've been lucky to be invited and, and speak with um, Swiss Hockey over the last few years and, and the like. I've, I've chaired sessions at the World Hockey Forum um, hosted by the Russian Federation in Moscow in December of each of the last four years, including this year, this last year, but we did it virtually online. And um, I, I do a lot with the PGA of Canada and the PGA of America. In fact, we're building a, um, a very specific performance training center for Team USA Golf um, in Frisco in Texas right now. They had come and visited me at Windsport in Calgary, which is where we have uh, our national training center for the winter sports to see what I'd done there in terms of the layout of the building and all that type of stuff. And, and so we're trying to apply some of those principles to this new facility. So I do quite a lot of that. And of course, you said I'm known for things to do with athlete development. That's because I got involved with a project that uh, four other colleagues of mine in Canada um, decided enough was enough back in the sort of mid early mid 2000s and wrote some articles in a book which sort of snowboard. Um, and um, it's an area I'm passionate about. When I was working with the national teams, I started after one Olympic cycle, so very few years into it, to start to wonder where do Canada's athletes actually come from? And um, I was very, very concerned with what I was seeing. In fact, many of the kids that were trying to get on junior national teams, say 19 years of age, they weren't very good athletes. They weren't very well trained physically emotionally, um, cognitively, and they had a sort of modicum of, of talents, you know, hockey players actually who couldn't skate very well, you know, and they had no idea um, of actually how to play the game. They, they knew systems, but if you move them into another team, you know, they weren't that adaptable because they didn't understand the invasion and uh, repelling aspect of, of any invasion sport. And, um, you know, they played lots of games growing up, but they really hadn't done that much training. And many of the deficiencies they had when they were 10, 11, 12, they just retained because nobody had the patience to, um, to really do them. And worse still, they were often in the hands of um, passionate people, for sure. 
but they weren't say that technical and um, they couldn't really teach how to skate they couldn't really teach how to uh, use the stick effectively and biases that the kids had they just kept because what most people can do is they can teach a system of play and they get comfortable with teaching that and since they're dealing with 12 or 13 year olds and they're like little robots you know they're they're not questioning what they do necessarily right and they, it wasn't environments where you had that type of involvement um, and so coaches were almost miniature NHL coaches rather than being mentors they didn't see their jobs as taking a 12 year old and helping them to become a great 13 year old and so forth and so forth through the system like in school you know where you go through the various grades you have a teacher for that grade and that subject who's an expert and they know what that particular age group should be able to do not the same in sport it's almost a one size fits all so um, I sort of fell into the athlete development stuff and really started to look around. And because I'd come from Europe and had some exposure to other countries, from France to Germany, the Benelux, down to Spain, you know, if you wanted to go and watch tennis or something like that, you could see what they've done. And some of the other quirky sports, such as sailing, which is an interest of mine, and which countries and what did they do to produce these kids and um, track and field, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I was very interested in sports schools and true sports schools. Came from a system of education in the United Kingdom, which was quite rigorous and structured, you know, lots of rules and all that, and a lot of tradition. And we had some, sport was important in virtually every school. And then there were a series of schools that were known for arts or sciences or athletics, a bit of both, whatever. And so, I knew of those and I, of course, knew of the European sports schools, either sports specific ones or ones which were a bit more, more generic. Um, and so that was interesting. And then also at the time, China was starting to appear on the world stage. And, you know, I've had the advantage over the last 20 years to be invited to China on a number of occasions and get to see what they're doing. And, um, and so I've been very lucky. And then Australia, of course, over the last uh, 30 odd years, once they got really serious. And that happened, interesting enough, you want to show the aspect of leadership, particularly at the highest level, the political level. So in 1976, Canada hosted the Summer Olympic Games in Montreal and became, unfortunately, the first host nation to never win a gold medal at their home games. So it was, it caused a lot of consternation in Canada because we got known as that. Um, uh, by the way, we repeated that in 1988 at the Winter Games. But in 1976, the Australians also had a terrible games. The only difference was their prime minister, and I quote, called it a bloody disgrace, the Australian performance. And that changed the whole culture they established, if you like, the Australian Sport Commission. I don't know if that it was exactly established then, but the drive, the money, the formation of the Australian Institute of Sport, the state institutes copying that the next level down and, and putting a real drive. And it took that whole period of time, if you like, 20 odd years, let's say, to then get to the 2000 Olympics, you know, um, where the Australians really came to their fore and, and they've never gone away since. They've had their ebbs and flows and there's been political questioning about why they spend so much money necessarily, but they have established a culture led often as not by their iconic sports 
in the Olympics or not in the Olympics, like cricket and rugby, for example, but then track and field, swimming, obviously. So that that was driven a lot by a political motive. So it was, I, you know, I've, I've garnered sort of lots of input into the things that have sort of affected me from many different countries. And then, as I said, when I got this role with Canadian performance sports, and we had no responsibility. That was the other thing, a big disconnect. The national teams and the national team programs, for the most part, were almost isolated from the rest of the, maybe under the same national sport organization, like Swimming Canada or ski, Alpine Skiing. But the, the, there was a, it, the, the development was left to the, the local regions and the local clubs and a lot of disconnect or information that would come down was not relevant to a bunch of eight-year-olds, right? It was coming from the 30-year-olds and the 35-year-olds on the World Cup ski circuit. It just didn't make sense. And so I started to question that and so did others. And that's how I got into it. What do the better countries do? Then more importantly, since we're starting with this young human, what's important for the young human? Because they're certainly not, say, an elite hockey player when they're eight to 16 years of age, they might be getting pretty good by the time they're 16, but they're still not going to walk onto the world stage. Typically, there's the odd phenom, but even then it takes them time to to progress. So that that's really my my background and what I'm doing now. And I I have a great interest in why I come to Viramaki every summer. Well, not last summer, um, whenever I can, because I'm interested in the education of young coaches. I like helping the administrators start to think about what kind of framework do they have to put into, into practice? Because it, you can't just say educate the coaches because you need to really put a lot of time into parents so that they understand what their role is and why they should be putting um, uh, money or time into their kids and why if they go to a hockey practice for a bunch of eight-year-olds, it's not gonna look like um, a KHL team right practice or anything like that so understand that they might be outside playing soccer today or playing basketball or, or doing tactics of an invasion sport but not hockey not on the ice you know or why did they spend a month simply doing skating and puck handling drills these type of things at a particular time and and why then do sometimes they it's better to do a festival of several games over a, a long weekend rather than you know, one game or two games every weekend for months on end, you know, that type of stuff, you know, school wouldn't do that. They, they have little pop tests every so often, but they do, they do a block of work where they actually teach you something and then sort of some midterm exams to see how you're doing. And then they have a period when you're going to go and play some games and put into practice what you've learned, right? We understand that's typical learning practice, like learn to play the piano. Well, to learn to play the piano and then do a concert, you better put a lot of time into the practice. So you have very high practice to competition ratios in virtually everything else to do with learning something compared to what we do with age group sports and particularly team sports, um, which is even worse at times. So um, that, that's that's what I like doing yeah. these days. And so, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting stuff. And you, you definitely have a, a lot of experiences and a lot of, uh, you've dipped your toes in a lot of different waters. and. And what you were describing about the the performance working with the businesses or the the military groups or the sports group that sounds that sounds really interesting because um the 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 similarities you were mentioning between performance across those fields uh, is something that you know can be applied in, in, in like all like you said how in all of those fields but 
you know, for today, we wanted to focus on this long-term athlete development or athlete development. And, and I want to start, if we can just dive into it a little bit more and describe, you know, LTAD a little bit more, because there's a lot of different models out there. And we, we've touched on a couple of them on our show. We've talked about the youth physical development model and the, um, the you know, original kind of LTAD model that came out, um, I think it was in the early 2000s. And, and there's a lot of other models out there, but can you, can you kind of um, summarize what it all means and, 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 and how we can kind of use these different models and kind of put them together or anything like that? Okay, well, LTAD is a very, very specific um, framework. Um, I hate it being reduced to the four letters, by the way, and I much prefer it to be stated, um, if you're going to talk about that particular model, as long-term athlete development, with an emphasis on long-term. Um, but we do that, we reduce complex terms to letters or numbers or anagrams or whatever it might be, and I understand that, but um, if you just say LTAD, it rolls off the tongue very easily and it makes it sound like it, it is easy and it's short term. It, there's nothing easy and short term about it. Um, the other thing is, um, where did that version actually come from? And I want to stress that we often use the word models around these things, but they're only models in terms of being a construct because very few of the model, the, the word model when you're talking in scientific terms and particularly math and engineering is something that has the underpinnings of some hypothesis. There's a, there's a rationale for building a building, you know, even if it's out of Lego in a certain way, like, you know, you don't build a tower one brick wide at the base, expecting it to stand by the time you've got a hundred bricks, right? You have a firm base. So there's a hypothetical reason for that. There's a rationale, there's previous knowledge that's brought in. Um, and virtually all these models to do with athlete development, for the most part, will have some grains of, um, let's say, evidence to them based on the type of bias they're coming from. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but they're, they're not usually studied on a sort of pilot group for like two decades before they're unleashed on, on the sport network, right? The people some good people or not as the case may be get together come up with a plausible framework and say here here's an athlete development format right this wasn't too dissimilar to what happened with the early pinnings of uh, ltad it actually started out because one of our canadian former hungarian but canadian sports scientists by the name of istan Bayi and one of his um, graduate students Anne hamilton um, developed for alpine skiing in Canada, the AIM document, the original AIM document, which stood for its AIM, and it stood for Alpine Integrated Model. And it had four stages, you know, this um, train to train, train to complete, et cetera, et cetera. And that those four that you see now within the bigger long-term athlete development, Canadian Sport for Life um, framework. And so they developed it around Alpine because like I experienced a few years later with what I was seeing in Calgary, ISFAN in the early 90s was um, the lead sort of sports performance consultant for Canadian skiing and based out of Victoria and Anne was one of his students there. And um, they put together a framework understanding that, you know, uh, 
although you may be dealing with little humans, they're not adults and we all go through these phases of development across several different parameters, the physical different parameters, so things like height and weight and muscle mass, the um, uh, cognitive aspects to do with brain development, emotional elements that come through because of the hormonal systems, uh, motor control in terms of learning skills and being able to control your body, which changes over time as, of course, muscular development and strength and power develop, those type of things. And they're not all congruent. They're not all simultaneous. Some will occur before others. Some are continuous over a 20, 25 period, year period or whatever. And so there's a there's a there's both a synchronicity, there's an unsynchronous component to it, but there's certainly a, a temporal element to this. And if you actually then go to the biological sciences, if you like, and the cognitive sciences, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you can actually start to see how other experts in the field of child and youth development, or even infant child and youth development, pediatrics, leading then into young adulthood and beyond you'll see these sequences, everything from the development of sight and speech and pressure sensitivity and, and rhythm and, and, as I said, strength and power, as well as skill execution change over time. We all understand that. And um, so they started to, in their terms, more from a physiological bias, and this is what I mean by many of the models or frameworks tend to, not always, they're all vastly improving, including Canadian Sport for Life, with the dimensions of information they're putting in and as knowledge changes over time. And uh, that's why, you know, in the LTAD for Canada, we talk about Kaizen as a core philosophical principle. Kaizen being the Japanese term or the Japanese principle of continual improvement. So when we wrote our original pop science document back in 2003, got published in 2005, we talked about well, one, we called it a pop science document. And two, we said that this has to evolve over time. You'd expect to see updates and improvements constantly as we get better or we consider different aspects. So this first model, the LTAD, the AIM document, um, we had that as a, a grounding aspect. And as I said, when the five of us got together, um, so myself, Ishvan, um, uh, um, Oh God, my memory's going like a sieve. Uh, Charles Cardinal from Quebec, um, Colin Higgs, who is a, um, a real growth and, and uh, child development uh, expert and particularly coming from a phys ed background and a cognitive function around the brain. Um, Mary Bluechart, who had a, uh, came from education in general, but was also um, uh, particularly interested in, 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 in athletes with disabilities. And, um, oh, I'm just going useless today. Richard, um, I'll come back to it. I'll remember it in a minute. So Richard was really our lead person. He'd been working with Isfam for a number of years out in BC, was heavily involved in um, what was then known as 2010 Legacies Now, which is a big long-term build-up to the Olympics and, and working with BC Sport and, uh, and was well-known in the area and had come from winter sports himself, actually, um, in natural luge. We got together and we, we, we produced this sort of guide of how to bring kids through um, from infancy through to at least to 
young adulthood. And we added three more stages. You know, we added the active start for the sort of the toddlers and infants, uh, a fundamental stage, which then took you through those sort of middle of the first decade, if you like, sort of five, six, seven, eight years of age and linked in with the sort of learn to train and then from there to train to train and on and on and on until finally we added a final ultimate stage, which we called active for life, which was meant that whenever you decided to get out of any kind of structured age group sport, or if you had gone the professional sport route or the Olympic sport, you would, you would continue being active, but active for life now, which may not necessarily be your, your competitive sport because we said that everyone sport starts in your local community and some people may step away and compete at higher levels but ultimately everyone comes back and lives somewhere and, and does activity whether it's simply running or riding a bicycle in their community and being active for life and teaching people an appreciation of knowledge about them so that was the first that's that was our one where did we where did Ishvan and others and all of us get many of information we read thoroughly the eastern Bloc sort of aspects we read thoroughly that the the grounding books from east german track and field and and we knew of the sports schools in various countries we looked at school sport um, across the globe but we looked at the mistakes that we knew were being made we were very concerned as you can imagine coming through the late 90s early 2000s in ever increasing dropout rates and this precipitous cliff that we see at about particularly in girls you know, 11, 12, 13 years of age, where they fall out of sport like lemmings almost and, um, and uh, don't continue on. And it's tragic to think that that's the last time you do any real rigorous um, organized activity. And so we had lots of questions about what we were seeing. Subsequent to that, and here's the funny thing, at various times in history, you can see, I'll, I'll call it LTAD, LTAD written by various authors all over the place, including in Canada. There was a booklet written by the Coaching Association of Canada back in the 80s, which I could basically recover, put some modern photographs in, some different terminology in and call it LTAD, right? It was actually there. And across the globe, there were these pockets of individuals or a particular sport that actually had pretty sensible, robust um, athlete development programs. The only issue, as I said, is they tended to come with a deep-rooted bias towards the original authors. So our one, you know, we were largely coming from the hard physical sciences of physiology. So our original things, we had a smattering of sort of, you know, motor control and cognitive function, but that came later, okay? So we were really focused on the physical changes that were happening and how that would change what you did with kids as they grew and developed. Um, you have ones by a phenomenal researcher called Jean, Professor Jean Cote at Queen's University, also here in Canada. He's in Kingston. And he came to it from much more, because his bias is from a sociological perspective. And you'll hear him talk about decisions made around engaging in sports. So, you know, his first stage would be the stage of sampling, for example and then investment, and then finally into a league, much more to do with how kids and their parents chose sports. And pretty true when you look at it, kids, particularly if they were embedded within a good school system, would sample lots of different sports, often to do with the seasons of the year. You know, so I remember sitting next to um, Larry Anoff. 
Agalarinov, very, very famous hockey player from Russia, um, at a USA hockey conference in Chicago several years ago now. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, in the winter months, you know, when he came home from school, um, before supper, he would ask his mum, can I go out and play with my friends on the open air ice arena just across the road? So he put on his skates, go out and play with all sorts of ages, shapes and sizes, different levels. And then his mum would call him in for supper. He'd go off for supper, have to do his homework. And if he got it done in time, she would let him go out and play for another 30 minutes or whatever before bed. And then when spring came, all the ice would melt. And so any structured hockey on indoor things, that would probably start to finish but there would be no more outside and they would switch when he came home from school they would play handball and soccer and all these type of things right and then he wouldn't play hockey again in the summer right he'd do all these other sports and then come back to it later on right but you know there was it was, still wasn't cold enough to be skating outdoors they would do other things until they had the opportunity to do that and I always remember talking about that and we've lost sight of that now here in Canada kids are almost not always but they could almost do hockey 11 months of the year, sometimes in some places, 12 months of the year and with spring hockey and all these other machinations. And they do camps in the summer when they should be doing other things. So we started to see many sports almost becoming, you know, like work, you know, not play anymore. You know, it almost becomes that they're being treated like um, it's their career when they're still in single digits of age and that type of stuff. So anyway, that, so you have Jean Cote's one, and then you have um, others that come in with their own bias. And what I've, what I've been a bit disappointed in is that there seems to be almost a professional competition. Um, I don't care what type of framework you utilize, as long as you have a, a framework that makes sense to the evolution of growth of the child, and, the, and, and then the youth and then into the young adulthood, that you have a great deal of patience and you understand the myriad of factors. It's not just about the physical changes. You need to understand the things you can't see, such as the brain development. You need to understand why certain types of training do not give you a particularly good return on that investment of time at certain ages. Why is it that we almost have an abject lack of building fundamentals around skill acquisition? And how do you do that? There's a big shift at times with people talking about, you've got to allow them just to do free play and we just throw the puck out there and let them do whatever they like. Well, there's also a very clear amount of evidence from the experts in that area, skill acquisition, that shows very clearly, you need to provide the kids with good quality instruction and often with demonstration you know, to actually push them on their way and then by all means allow them to be creative and learn by some trial and error aspect. But it's not just one or the other. And there's often a, we in hockey, for example, we moved a lot away from, oh, drills are bad, we can't do drills. No, drills aren't bad at all. It's how you utilize drills and when you utilize drills and what's the purpose of the drill and how do you keep control? No point doing a drill if they haven't got the capability to control the drill. They can't skate very well and turn and and handle the puck and they've got a puck coming at their stick at light speed and they have they don't understand the concept of removing the kinetic energy the so-called soft hands no point running a drill if they keep failing at it right so drills are important they have their time and place and the key thing is as a coach coaching to the level with a bit of a push of the audience that you're dealing with Right. That's what I mean. So if you're coaching um, 11 and 12 year olds, 
how are you over the time you have over the season you have progressing them to be better for the start of the next season you know so take that 12 year old and make them a better 13 year old hockey player and so forth and so forth and how do you build from fundamental tactics understanding the basics to gradually what's the what's what's uh, tactics 202 and then 303 and 403 and that should be the same for everything from stick handling to whatever and uh, and really looking you know with your scouting report what's the scouting report in other words what's the crit critique look like for your 10 year olds and then what does it look like for your 12 year olds and your 14 year olds now there will be common themes but it not better not be identical you better not be correcting the same things or trying to improve the same things that you're doing as a 10 year old you should be now layering up in the same way you go to school grade one grade two grade three grade four grade five the exams become more serious they change in nature you haven't always done the same subjects and yet in sports and particularly say in hockey you know because the parents aren't that well aren't that knowledgeable really you know they've watched games but they don't really know and they certainly don't have a background in child and youth development you know they expect practice and the curriculum to look exactly what it looked like looks like 10 years later or, or for the pros you know and that's clearly not not what you need and so you need to educate everyone involved including the administrators that are going to run they need to know why do you have um small area practices for the little kids more than you will for the bigger kids although the big kids need it why is it you can use the outside car park you know in the early fall or the later spring to do tactics or to do skills because you don't need the ice you can save the ice you could teach all the tactics in the car park outside over a few sessions right with either a um, you know, a, a tarmac, a hockey puck or a, a Swiss ball or whatever it might be, or tennis ball, even I don't care, a Coke can with a bunch of stones in doesn't really matter. You can teach all the tactics out there, you can draw chalk lines, and then they know what they're meant to be doing. And then when you get to the ice, you don't have to waste time explaining it. So, you know, the key thing is to understand that whatever model you have, whatever framework, are you putting the right type of stuff into the curriculum, the right type of experience in for your five to 10 year olds? And then how does that change, assuming you've made the advancement in those 10 year olds for when they're now 11 to 15? And what does that look like? And so forth and so forth. You, know, you get the idea? And the key thing is not to neglect the human as a whole. Mike Babcock, he's a coach I've got a lot of respect for. He's a bit old school, some people might say, but I found him very receptive, particularly when he was coaching Team Canada for the Olympics. And, you know, I worked with him fairly closely. And um, even though we're dealing with that level, we were, we um, were still focused on developing the players and we had to get them to play in a certain rough format in a relatively short period of time, limited practices, all that type of stuff. But even when he was, you know, with any of the teams, he was very interested in this phrase and he'd say it. Okay. And even when he's under the pressure of having to win, having to win, he would say, we build the human first, the athlete second, and the hockey player third. And that's a principle I think you should be taking to all sports. 100%. And that's the reason why it's also the theme of our show that uh, humans first, athletes second, players first. So Absolutely. We strongly crucial. believe. Yeah. yeah and you know, one of the key things, this humanistic aspect, see if you actually look at something like the team sports particularly very well organized team sports 
which hockey clearly has in every country I've ever seen, basically. Um, the problem is, once you get to about uh, 12 years of age, between then and 20, you don't actually get the experience of a lot of different coaches. You think about it, in two-year age groups, as you move from up through the system, you don't come across, you don't get exposed to that many coaches, right? So maybe you could get by with, you've got your 14 and under coach, you've got the 16 and under coach, maybe the 18 and under coach, then maybe you go to some kind of team where you might be there three or four years, perhaps, so another coach. Each one giving you a biased particular set of um, systematic play, whatever system they're playing. So now you've gone through these big formative years because you probably can't remember what you did when you were 12 and under and 10 and under really, right? Um, you have these systems in your mind and they're, they're taught in such a rigid way. You're never really taught how to play the game of hockey. You're told, go stand on the blue line when this happens. Not why should you probably go and stand over on the blue line? You know, so that when X doesn't happen, you know, and you shouldn't go and st stand on the blue line, you still do because you're the, you're, that's what you're taught to do. And because you're not, you don't really have an understanding the game per se, you don't understand the flow, you don't understand the machinations, you don't understand what you've got to do, et cetera, et cetera. That's why even the rules through development hockey should change. Why do you need to have that offside rule that the NHL and the and the and the and top flight hockey plays to when you're 12 years of age? Because if you go, if you don't have the rule and you think it's cool that you're gonna go and stand right by the opposition goalie, right, and wait for your teammates to send you the puck, you will soon learn that that doesn't work because the other team will figure out they're gonna leave a defenseman behind, right, to do that. But once you've got more of an idea of the game, then suddenly the next year, oh, by the way, now we're gonna introduce this rule, which actually states that you can't rush down the other end until one of two things have happened. Either the puck on its own has gone into that end and you can chase after it, or one of your teammates, or sorry, and, uh, or you, you, the puck and a, a, another player, i.e. a defenseman or one of your teammates has gone into that their zone with the puck, right? Now you go in there. And so they've now restrained that what it is, is about gradually restraining what you can do. So you end up playing the hardest form of the game when you're the most competent, right? But we just play the same rules all the time. The only saving grace has been the gradual development of small area games and cross ice and things like that, which brings me to the idea of scaling in, in sport and life. Why is it when you go to a, an elementary school, all the furniture is small? You go to where they hang their coats up when they come into the school and all the coat and all the hooks are fairly low down the wall compared to when you go to the high school. You go outside to the bike rack and all the bicycles are small. Why? Because all the kids are small, right? Scaling. They have small equipment. There's even the possibility of playing with a blue puck, but oh my God, there's so many people will not play with the blue puck because that's not hockey. Got to play with a black puck. So you get this six-year-old trying to move this brick, okay, which they have no chance. Have you ever you've probably all been frustrated because, you know, we have that icing rule or you've got to get the puck out of the zone 
because we've got that offside rule with all these little kids, but they've got no hope of moving the, the puck from just in front of their own net out of their own zone because they just don't have the strength. They certainly can't rebound it off the, off the boards or anything like that yet, yet, but they can in, in, in the future. They don't understand um, the fact that, you know, that if they're really good, they can pass the puck up the ice far faster than they can skate, particularly at that age group. But you've got one kid that can dominate because he can skate better than his friends and off he goes and he doesn't pass. You know, so all these opportunities and because we're going to play on a huge surface of ice, it becomes a marathon event rather than what you eventually become, both from a, a biomechanical point of view, as well as from an energetics point of view, a sort of very power anaerobic type sport for the most part with some fleeting aerobic recovery in between. Completely different. And the other thing, you know, when you look at the stats, even of the best players, you'll see that they're on the ice for only a few minutes out of the game. They have the puck, okay, for a few seconds on their stick. So you need to really know what the hell you're doing if you're only on the ice for a few minutes and you only have the puck for a few seconds. And how do you get that? By in the formative years, having the puck on your stick for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contact times. And yet what do we do with kids? We put them in constantly drills where they stand at the back of the line for two minutes. They do something for eight seconds and they don't even always have the puck then. Whereas really we should be giving them all a puck for countless amounts of time when they're younger. You know, It's like going to soccer practice and you all have a ball. And then gradually you take a number of balls away. So there's more and more kids with playing with one ball, one puck, and they have to do things with that, right? As you raise the standard, you bring in more constraints or you can't go over here or now you've added another rule. You can only use your left foot, not your right foot. You know, how many people do that in hockey? You know, so you end up with people that can only turn one way on the ice because they're only good at doing that. They can't turn the other way. They can only protect the puck to the inside of the blade, not to the outside of the blade. They have to stop skating, striding to make a pass because they can't do a fine motor task with the brain and a gross motor task at the same time. You know? So they have to go to the Clyde. You watch how many of the so-called top players actually have to do those things or the numbers that can't, can't uh, turn in both directions struggle to get up off the ice on their non-dominant leg, all these types of things, things they should have learned when they were eight, nine, and 10. Well, exactly. This is the point, like you have been mentioning several times, for example, a few players, um, they cannot make a turn at a certain time. And um, for example, they cannot really like execute the technical abilities of the turn because it hasn't been taught to them probably. And um, this leads totally to my next question, because if we think about what you have been saying about the long-term athlete development, and if we think about all these stages, so for example, now we start from active to start, then we go to fundamentals, then we go to learn to train, train to train, train to compete, train to win and active uh, um, for life. And, um, but going back to the turning example, um, let's say a kid which is 15 years old goes next season or currently is under 16 goes next season to under 17 or under 18 depending on uh, which country he's playing but still he's not capable of executing a turn or receiving a pass or um, shooting um, um, and 
in the long-term athlete development, there are certain recommendations when you should enter a certain zone, but how do we actually can evaluate development and how do we actually measure it that we can say, okay, now this kid is capable of doing this. Now okay, so this I'll turn kid... this question right back on you because it's a All fundamental right. one and you asked me this about how do we measure the development of athletes. How many, and let's, let's stay with hockey then, okay? okay? How many organizations, teams, or coaches have really good comprehensive evaluation systems as opposed to simply the evaluation of a game with the lag metrics of scores and passes and all these types of things, or shots on net, number of saves, et cetera. The poor defensemen, of course, getting often left out of this, right? Because uh, they just don't always have the opportunity to make the grade in some of these areas of how you evaluate a game. They don't talk about how many steals did you take of the puck away from the offense? How many turnovers did you initiate? You know, these things. But then move it away from the game and just talk about, you know, hockey is a sport that relies on skating fundamentally, right? Where is a thorough evaluation, particularly in the beginning ranks? If you can't skate, it's going to become a ceiling for you in how you play the game. I don't care how good you are at handling the puck. Okay, because if you ultimately can't skate, therefore move either to get in the way of someone or to get, get to the puck, or once you've got the puck, do something magnificent by skating while you're doing something fantastic with your hands uh, on the stick and with the puck. Where, where is this happening? You know, we talk a lot about um, read and react. Okay, tell me how you're going to measure that. Because what I'm talking about is if you only teach a system, when that system breaks down or you're not allowed to play that system because of what the opponents are doing, where is the decision-making? Where is the read and react? Where's the understanding of the game that actually says that? Or are, can you point at this guy and say, do you look at him? He shows the same behavior all the time. He always does this, this when this is actually happening, does not learn, right? And could see it for years, you know? And then you get this inflexibility where, a player who's very good in one situation gets traded to another team is absolutely bloody hopeless, right? And I'm not saying that's happening all the time, but I'm saying ask yourself the question, the scouting report that's appropriate for the age to do with the fundamental skills, which sets you up to play the game, which includes ever increasing complexity and sophistication in how the game is played. You know, one thing that even as he aged, Gretzky still always understood the flow of the game, where to stand, and everyone would always, always get him into self into space. Okay, well, evaluate that. This kid doesn't, he gets clobbered all the time. He's never in the right place. He's always slow to the puck, but maybe that's actually, he's not that slow to the puck. He actually skates quite fast, but he didn't start skating to the puck until a couple of seconds after everyone else did because he didn't recognize what the hell was going on, right? And so there's these other elements. We treat these, almost these games in a very binary fashion, but once the whistle blows and you're into free open play, you, you better have this degree of capability of understanding. It's not simply like the gun goes and you've got to swim to that end of the pool and back the other way, right? Yeah, there, there comes exactly um, my next question um, because this is something I've been thinking a lot about that, for example, now if we talk about what you have been talking about, um, my understanding, 
is basically all this like game understanding, um, decision making, and um, I, f I forgot the third, third part now. But all the all these all these few components are are part of part of game sense. And um, if we and we also need to think about here like principles of invasion games, right? That we teach those things. So because there's certain in games in computer science, in computer science, every kid is taught game theory. Yes, exactly. And yet in games, we don't teach them this. If every kid yeah. is going to design a game, there's the math behind it. There's the, yeah. the structure, the elements of, of what goes on. But we don't do a lot of these grounding things. And then we let them loose on these games. And we think they're going to learn all this by some kind of osmosis of playing mm. lots of games. That's definitely the North American model uh, of what we do. The better coaches have an understanding. And so over time, based on fundamentally good capabilities skate well handle the park all this type of stuff okay all those type of things um be able to pass be able to see be able to shoot be able to save whatever it is movement around the ice and then gradually build on top of that some systems because without those skills that it doesn't matter the systems won't work right you've got to have the ability to pass or do whatever then And then from there, the actual thinking about the game, because the coach isn't skating there along with you saying, do this, do that, right? They're on the bench. They may be screaming at you, but the reality is these kids are having to make these decisions in real time. And the better they can understand what's going on or recognizing what might be happening, or if their teammate is out of position, what are their options that don't leave big gaps? You know, what, what's the least thing that's going to hurt them, right? By being there. Where do we teach those type of things? The better coaches that I feel do it. I think soccer um, has some fine examples of coaches that really do mentor. I think the former Spurs manager, Mauricio Pochettino, now at PSG, I think he had a reputation. And there are others for really nurturing young players and bringing them on, being patient, even in a very hostile, professional, win-now type environment, which is part of the challenge as you go higher and higher and there's even less patience in the system although supposedly that's where farm teams are meant to be working but they're not often because there's as much pressure there in many situations right so i look for organizations where they truly have this is why the great multidisciplinary sports clubs like moscow dynamo right at its heart moscow dynamo was a uh, a sports club for the workers, right? And others, intelligentsia. And you could, as a family, join Moscow Dynamo and the kids would be exposed to all these sports and there would be levels of the sports coming up and they would have their, you know, their famous pro teams, Moscow Dynamo football, Moscow Dynamo ice hockey, they even have a swim team, all these types of things, handball, all this type of stuff. But Their farm teams were literally that. They were they were nurturing and farming their kids coming up through it. And I look for even professional teams that have that attitude. They don't just, you know, we're going to throw you out to the American Hockey League now for a couple of seasons and we're not really going to help you. We're just going to give, we, we've actually basically stopped you going to another team and you're going to play for us. And if you get any good, then you've got a chance to making our, our top team, right? And that's a, that's a harsh thing to say, okay, because it's not, 100% true, but it's mainly true. Their goal isn't necessarily to not only preserve their investment in this player, but to increase that investment and move that kid up, as you'd expect, right? Remember, the cheapest way to build a championship team is to ultimately build from within the organization and not get involved 
in having to pay exorbitant transfer fees and etc etc the some of the soccer team remember that great soccer team fc barcelona a few years ago who um they fielded 11 people for that championship game that had all come through their their the that, that what's it called the familia fam, familia the farmhouse right and um it was cheap for them and they also had behind that they had like 10 players that didn't make their first team, but they sold on and they actually covered the cost of everything else they were doing, right? Do you remember that? And, and I look for those type of things. I think uh, Bayern Munich, although they still signed some big players, they, you know, they have a big grounding behind them. And there are others, uh, Dortmund, for example, you know, actually Dortmund has got a bit of a reputation of going around picking up some cheap English players at the moment, but developing them, you know, they've got a couple who made the full England team, for example, you know, Kid wasn't getting any playing time in England. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, I think there's a, uh, some good examples of those for sure. And and Dr. Norris, I, I wish we had more time, but we're, we're running short here a little bit. So we wanted to ask just kind of one final question for you. And and that's just, do you have any kind of final message on on just how do we use this information? How do we how do we better serve our our athletes through their development uh, when it comes to you know, all of this ideas behind the LTAD or, or sorry, long-term athlete development and everything like that. Um, just how do we better serve our athletes? You know, that's a very good thing. I think it's actually what I do a lot with organizations right now. If you're dealing with certain age groups, okay, make it pretty much known what your end product wants to be. So if you're, you're, if you're in a club organization and you're dealing with the younger age groups, your job ultimately is to help them grow as a human and improve as an athlete and raise their skill level in the competitive game of hockey, if it happens to be hockey, okay, or whatever sport that third category is, right? So the human, the athlete for sure, and, and whatever sport they're doing. But hold it in check in understanding that the competitive outcome is going to be largely related to that age group that they're in. And there's going to be a sort of almost normal distribution curve in what that looks like from the kids that are right slap bang in where you'd expect 16 year olds to be. Then you're going to have a few ahead of the curve and a few a little bit behind the curve, because that's reflective of, of just the stats around performance for the most part. Not strictly true. There are some skewed um, distribution curves, but in general. But what you have to do is have the leadership in the administration that understands what you're trying to do. And if you sit below some senior teams, maybe then your youth team, your upper youth team, and then your senior team, whatever it might be, that part of your responsibility is certainly to try to help those move on into the next stage of their careers. But ultimately that they would leave behind and be able to say two things. I learned a lot and I had a great time, no matter what the performance level. Because if you set them up with that attitude, those that have the aptitude and the drive to go on will, and particularly if they have a pathway to move them on. And the others, they've had, they, they have a great deal of respect. They understand the process more. They're going to be probably your parents of the future, your um, coaches perhaps of the future, administrators of the future, and maybe even your sponsors of the future. Who knows? Live in hope. And um, so clearly set that out. But you need to have that administrative leadership that understands you need to educate your parents very clearly on what you're trying to do. You almost is what does the parenting 101 brochure look like for any kid coming to your club here, parents, this is what we're going to do with your child. 
if they're this age group for the first couple of years, and then you'd expect them to move to here. This is the actual progression we're going to take them through. And here are the top three goals in each of those stages, you know, of, of um, being involved and let the parents know that. Don't be frightened of parents. Educate the parents to understand that this is a long process and that the NHL and the KHL and the national team for Finland and the junior teams, whatever, look like this and do this type of work for a reason, because they're at this stage. You can almost draw out your pathway. And I wouldn't even necessarily call it long term athlete development. I would just call it like um, I call it something like uh, your charge development and experience, you know, and or the athlete development. And I'll actually start to talk about you and the parent and the child are in a partnership of investment in that kid, no matter what happens to their performance level, right? Because, you know, it's like the Olympics. There's only three places on the Olympic podium, okay? Not seven billion. If there were seven billion steps to the podium, we could all do it and all get to the podium, but we can't, right? There's three. Right. And it's no different than anything. You want to be a concert pianist? Well, we can't all be concert pianists. Right. So, it, it, you know, you want to be a great uh, welder. Right. Well, there are great welders. There are average welders and there are pretty shitty welders. Right. We're going to whatever you're going to do, you're going to produce something good. And there's continuity and they're going to be better, better fins or whatever nationality they're coming from. They're going to be better athletes. That's going to help them through the rest of their lives and good role models by being a good human first, right? It's good humans create great athletes. So many examples of some pretty shitty behaviors in performance sports, right? Because of a lack of values. And if you build that into your initial brochures and you reinforce these messages when you're dealing with children and youth, you, you, will, you will have success at the performance levels. That'll happen for sure. But what you will have is an incredible alumni for your organization. And one of the success markers for me is the strength and the respect of your alumni, all the kids that come through it, all the adults that are involved with it and aligning on your values and purpose. Yeah. And I didn't talk yeah. about sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, great stuff. And, and, and Dr. Norris, thank you so much for your time. It was a, it was a pleasure to to hear you speak and to hear your information. So we really appreciate it. Uh, we wish you the best of, uh, we wish you the, a good rest of the day. Sorry about that um, choke there, but yeah, just thank you. Uh, my pleasure. And I look forward to being in, uh, in Finland again soon and, uh, and spending time, obviously wonderful Viramaki. Yeah, we'll catch up then. Okay. All right. So thanks again to Dr. Steve Norris for joining us today to talk about long-term athlete development and some of the different models and everything that are out there. It was great to get a kind of a fresh perspective on it from him. And the place that I want to start with today in the in the outro is the well, just that the different models of long-term athlete development. You know, you have you have several different ones out there, and, and they're coming from a different perspective in each one, as Dr. Norris mentioned. And, and I think the, the one that's really interesting to me, or the idea that's really interesting to me is that the people that create these models, you know, they, they put a lot of work into them and everything like that, but they're all coming from their unique perspective. And, and he mentioned that 
Jean Cote, who we've had on before, is, is coming from a more psychological perspective and, you know, things like the the original LTAD model um, from the early 2000s is coming from a more physical perspective on, on development. And I think that's really interesting because it kind of opened my eyes into how do I see development as a coach, right? How do I look at it and what's most important to me? And and I have to say, I'm starting to, to realize I think I'm more from the, the psychological side than the, the physical side, if that makes sense. And I'm not saying that that's not important. Of course, you need to know all of the different ways that a child develops, both cognitively, psychologically, physically, um, emotionally, and, and just everything like that. Of course, you need to understand that. But I think overall, it is it is more important to me as a coach that the, the athlete comes back and enjoys their time and wants to stay with the sport long term, um, rather than kind of just just becoming like a super athlete. And I think that's kind of um, it, it was kind of highlighted by what Dr. Norris said at the end too, that there's, you know, there's only three places on the Olympic podium. There's not 7 billion or 8 billion with the population of the world today. And I think that, that, that is so important to keep in mind, right? Like, of course it's, it's, it's great to want to become a, an elite athlete and everything like that. But you also need to recognize as a coach that not everyone can become that elite athlete because, then everyone would be an elite athlete, right? So you have to recognize that there's other motives, there's other other goals in sport, and and I think that that is um, that is something to to really keep in mind. I think for myself at least. I think the phrase that there exist only three places on the Olympic podium underlines how much practice it takes to go there, and I think also still strongly believe that how much deliberate work it actually takes until you get there. And I think it um, also reflects on what Dr. Norris said in our episode today, that learning to play the piano um, takes plenty of practice um, to achieve an expert performance. And so it's with plenty of other things. We have been discussing with Lauri Hakala in depth, um, the, the deliberate practice as well. And speaking about my experience, uh, when I was very young, I was also playing uh, saxophone and at the same time I was playing hockey and I had to say that I had I was pretty good at the saxophone I had some natural abilities uh, but yet I was not so motivated to put in the practice and to put in the time um, so I decided at some point to quit um, so for me this also has been showing that in, in the music world, how much actually practice it takes to really get good in, as an, in an instrument. And again, the same accounts from sports overall, as we have been talking about in depth as well. And something else I would like to touch on is that, as Dr. Norris has been emphasizing during our episode, that we really need elite coaches in each age group. And I think this is maybe the most valuable key takeaway from today's conversation with Dr. Norris for me because really to develop athletes or giving up athletes the opportunity um, to compete at the high level or to develop overall athleticism which is anyway the goal number one um, so every athlete stays healthy and has the opportunity um, to move adequately um, this is so crucial just, just because of that. Because if we don't have elite coaches for each age group, then plenty of things are missing. 
Dr. Norris has been speaking a um, few times today about the turning example, but if we don't have coaches who are really experts at teaching how to do a turn, um, then we have a big issue when the players are getting older because we also don't do a favor to the players because at the end of the same, the development pathway needs to be fair for every player. Yeah, and I think, you know, going beyond just the turning example of, of that, but like, you know, you look at schools, and I think this is something Dr. Norris mentioned as well, is that you look at schools and you have teachers for each specific age group. You have you have tests for each specific age group, right? And, and kids are only supposed to, you know, they're, they're measured to where, you know, kind of where they're supposed to be at the time. And I, I think that's so important for sports as well, because if you don't have a coach running your 12 U's that is a true expert on what a 12 U needs, you know, that's not a fair development for those athletes, you know, that, that coach. And of course, that's, you know, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to have, you know, elite coaches at every age group, but it is, it is necessary, I think. And then, and it's something that, you know, to take pride in like, Hey, I'm an elite eight and under coach. I, I know as much as I can about what eight and under players need and what makes them, you know, ready for nine and unders, what makes them ready for 10 and unders and, and so on and so forth. And I think that that is, that is so important, especially, you know, with what I want to do in the future with running clubs and, and coach development, it's something to keep in mind, really, because, you know, knowing so much about one age group really makes that the most beneficial that you can give to those athletes, right? And, and it, it makes it so much more powerful for them, so much more useful for them, and, and so much more just better for their development. And I think that is, that is something that kind of blew my mind, right, when he said it kind of thing. And it, it, it just made so much sense when he when I heard it. And it was, um, and I think it's an important message for sure. And I think the, the other thing for that too, is, is recognizing where the athletes are in their development. And I really like the analogy he used of playing, we want the athletes to be playing the hardest version of the game when they're at their most competent. So I've never thought about it like this, but if you think about a full-size hockey game, right, or a full game with all of the rules in place for a 12U player and an NHL player, that makes no sense from a competence level, right? You don't have eight-year-olds trying to do college-level math. Like, you just don't. And so I think from, a, from that analogy standpoint, you know, simplifying the game, and it goes back to our conversation last week with Dr. Chow of, you know, task simplification and everything like that and making it easier. But this idea of making the game harder as the players become more competent, again, it just kind of, it put it into a new perspective on, on why do we want the players playing a more simple game? Why do we want to make it easier on them? Well, it's because they're not as competent yet and they shouldn't be as competent yet, right? They shouldn't have that same level of confidence or competence, sorry, as an NHL player because they're 12 or 14 or 16 or 18 even. And, and, and I think that is, that is something that, again, it just put it in a new perspective and it kind of flipped the switch to me. And, and that already made sense to me, but now it makes even more sense to me. I also, that thing, I also think that this reflects on the conversation we had with Anders Wallström at the beginning of the podcast um, because they have been doing research on which game formats are appropriate for which age. And again, their 
highly recommend to play at a certain age this kind of game format. And I think this also totally totally reflects on um, the quote or the phrase Dr. Norris has been saying today here on our show. And um, the other point you touched on that we need to really, um, when, 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 when we have player development, and then we really need to look at the player right now. And um, I think for me personally, this is so important because it does not make a lot of sense to me if we have players and let's say you have them today, you start your season today and in one year, um, if they have been developing, you still look at them with the same eyes you have been looking at them one year ago. I think it's really crucial in uh, long-term athlete development that we recognize player development. I think this is so, so essential that we're not keep looking at this player where he was one year ago or two years ago, or that we still have the player with, in, in our mind with the same abilities and with this, uh, the same development level. And um, the other point I would like to touch on, and I think this was also one of the most essential points Dr. Norris, Dr. Norris has been touching here on today is that um, whatever framework we are using in our long-term athlete development curriculum, um, it's really crucial that we put the right amount of information in there. And I think, yes, you definitely, I still strongly believe you definitely need to know, you definitely still need to get to know um, the culture in where, where you're working and that this has a big influence, but still, there are certain parts in long-term athlete development which should overla overlap between plans all the time. I think this is very crucial to keep in mind as well. Yeah, and, and piggybacking off of that point, right? Like it, it doesn't matter what model you use, what framework you use, and how you combine them or or how you look at it. It, it just has to be the most useful for your athletes, right? And so recognizing the the culture that you're in the the social cultural constraints of the athletes and recognizing you know where they are in their development and everything like that all of those things combined all of those constraints on the athlete combined both inside the sport and outside of the sport constraints what makes the most useful development model for my athletes and i think that's really the key takeaway from today's conversation with with dr norris is that you know, you just really have to, it's not a universal fit. You have to, you have to find the model that works best for your athletes and in your environment. And I think that's, that's something to, to definitely take away and to, and to really just kind of gives me motivation to, to learn is as much about this idea overall of long-term athlete development from all different perspectives, right? Psychological, physical, cognitive, emotional, and everything like that. So you really get a true understanding of, of how, how people develop and how humans develop. And I think that's a, a really important piece. So I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up for today's conversation with Dr. Steve Norris. Again, thank you to him for, for joining us today to talk some long-term athlete development and, and just overall um, a great conversation with him. So I thank you everybody for listening. And as always, thanks for supporting the show. Um, we, we really appreciate it. And don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Coaches Road. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, send us some feedback um, on our website, thecoachesroad.com. And until the next time, we will...
I butchered that, but thanks for listening. Bye.